Now, Jeremiah 14 has a structure which I have outlined there at the top of the first page. In order not to uh, go over it in detail, but to enable you to observe or to see the symmetries that are there. I'm particularly interested that you note, and I will go into some additional detail as we proceed, the beginning and ending of that outline where God (coughs) speaks to the prophet for the sake of the nation and in verses 1 to 6, and then in verses 17 to 18, you have a parallel or symmetrical pattern. And then uh, at the top of the outline, the prophet speaks for the nation to God, verses 7 to 9, which is also parallel to verses 19 to 22. Uh, These two sections of that outline are are very important, though you'll notice the symmetry in the center. There's not a strict symmetrical chiasm here, but nonetheless there is another uh, pattern of parallelism in the center with God speaking to the prophet on two occasions and the prophet responding to God on one occasion in verse 13. So there's a narrative paradigm here, but there's more than a narrative paradigm, and and so I want to get to that in the course of uh, our study this evening. But I want you to see it, and you know you can refer back to it uh, if we comment and you you kind of slips your mind. Just take a look at the top of this front page. Now there's a frame around this entire chapter. There's in fact an inclusio around the chapter. So <clears throat> I want you to take a few moments just to look at verse one, and then to look at verse twenty-two, and see if you can spot the inclusio feature. Now you're looking for something that is similar. It may not be exactly the same words, but you're looking for something that's similar in terms of theme or motif. And when you when you think you see something, just Give it a shout out. That's what they say these days, right? They give you a shout out. Well, we, we wrong. See, that's the problem. It's all right to be wrong. I've been wrong times in my life. I can't count them. But so, the first was it talks about drought. Very good. Very good. But see, then, you're not wrong. Well, yeah, of course, because it's right there. But then, <laughs> in the 22nd, it's the opposite. Yes, what in 22? Who can give what they need when there's drought? Who can give the rain? So what would be the opposite of the drought? The last word you just spoke. The rain or showers. The rain or showers. So we have an inclusio which is opposite, as you said, good word. We have an antithetical inclusio. We have an inclusio of opposites. The drought at the top and the rain and the showers at the end. So it begins with the emphasis upon this drought. It ends with what would be the reverse of a drought, namely rain and showers. So that's what I mean by that blank, note the blank narrative frame. It's an antithetical narrative frame. 
And in verse 1, you have drought. And in verse 22, you have rain and showers. At least that's what you have in the New American Standard. I don't know whether any of you have a different version which has anything different in verse 22. <clears throat> but you'd get the idea. The, the language would reflect uh, the coming of rain. All right, so there is a crisis facing Jerusalem, Judah, the prophet Jeremiah, and the nation. And the crisis in verse 1 is what, Ben? It's the drought. So the drought is a narrative crisis. Understand that going through this drought is going to be a story. It's going to have its own uh, own life of itself. If you ever lived through a drought, if you've ever lived through a time when water was scarce, particularly if you're from the Midwest, you may have actually experienced that. If you had been there living there this summer, you would have experienced the drought that has hit the Midwestern section of our country. All right. <clears throat> so this is a story uh, <clears throat> that we know very little more about except that it existed. Okay, we'll, we'll ask in a little bit whether or not we can date this event. So this is a narrative event of a crisis that came upon the nation of Judah with the Lord's direction, obviously with his divine permission. He decrees whatsoever comes to pass, as our confessional and catechetical standards indicate. We Calvinists believe that God is absolutely sovereign in control of all things, including drought. The drought doesn't come by accident, doesn't come by chance. It comes by the decree and the foreknowledge of God. All right, so this crisis has been brought upon the nation of Judah in Jeremiah's time uh, at some time during his career. But there's another crisis in this chapter. There is another narrative paradigm in this chapter. There's another story going on in this chapter. Now, if you read ahead of time, you might think a little bit about it. If you didn't, then you're trying to scan it quickly and see if you come up with anything. Ben, your head went up. Uh, what, what were you thinking of? It seems to me that the, the Lord no longer had any dealings with him. Okay. Now, uh, you, you, could, you could say that about the drought, though, couldn't you? That would be true. In other words, he's indicating something by the drought that he's going to leave them to themselves. Yes. There's another story about a crisis in the nation. Is there another narrative going on? Yes, the false prophets. All right. So we actually have two crises, don't we? We have the, the natural crisis of the drought, and we have a spiritual crisis of the false prophets. Now, the reason I'm asking you to think about the duplicate or the twofold narrative is that they are interrelated. They interface. They are not uh, disparate. They are not separate. Because they're in this chapter together, they are interweaved. And when you think about that, you have to penetrate to why these two narrative crises are put together, back to back in the same chapter of Jeremiah. We want to think about that because most of the commentators don't. 
They can't explain why he breaks off into this dialogue with God about the false prophets. It seems completely unrelated to this uh, drought motif that is present at the top. So we want to address that, and we want to address it uh, in terms of the, the, the particular theological interrelationship between these two uh, narrative crises. All right, now, the other crisis is the false prophets. If you're filling out the outline, uh, question mark about the date of the drought, we really don't know. There's nothing in verse 14 that says in the days of Josiah hmm? or in the days of Jehoiakim hmm? or in the days of Jehoiakim. So we really don't know. It's an undated, unspecified drought. But let's take a look at a duplicate in 2715. Now, when I say duplicate, I'm thinking of verse 14 in this chapter, not the drought per se, but verse 14, which is speaking about the false prophets. And turning over to chapter 27, verse 15. Loretta, have you gotten there yet? I have. Thank you. Would you read it, please? For I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they prophesied falsely in my name in order that I may drive you out and that you may perish. You and the prophets who prophesied to you. Notice, keep your finger there and you look back to 1414. It's a very similar uh, style of language. God addressing for false prophets in parallel language. All right, so there is a case in which this language in chapter 14 about the false prophets recurs. It occurs again in chapter 27, verse 15. And now in chapter 27, if you'll glance back to the first verse of that 27th chapter, what do you find? You still have your finger there? What's the first verse? Zedekiah. Okay, now what do we know about Zedekiah? Loretta, let's start with you. What do you know about Zedekiah? What do you know about Zedekiah? Does he take son of Josiah? What was his office? Mary Lou, what was his office? What was his role? What did he do? Lisa? He is the king. He is the king of Judah. What king of Judah is he, Robert? What king? What king of Judah is he? I mean, what number is he? Yeah. Too hard on yourself. <laughs> ben? I think he was the last one. He is the last one. Yeah. Okay, so what date do we have for his the end of his reign? What date do we have for the end of his reign, Robert? Oh, what's that? You said what, 286? No. 586. 586 is when Jerusalem 
falls, what does he do when the city begins to collapse? Okay, what does he do? I think he left. He tried to run away. He tried to run away. Which direction? Where was he headed? Probably Egypt. No, he wasn't. Where was he headed, Ben? Terry? Frank, you know? Okay, he, he ran out the east gate, headed to the Jordan Plain. Why did he want to go to the Jordan Plain? Why did he want to get down to the Jordan River? Because the Jordan River Valley is a jungle. He could hide in there. Remember how Absalom got hung up by his hair in the valley of the Jordan? Because <clears throat> it was such a thick, thick, brum, uh, thick uh, underbrush. It's just like a, a jungle. In fact, people have died in there. They've starved to death in there. They've gotten lost. That's how thick it is. It's... it's uh, very intimidating. It's most unsuspecting. So anyway, he's headed east to try to hide. And <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar catches him. And what does he do, Kay? Pardon? Nebuchadnezzar catches him as he's trying to run away. And what does he do? I don't know if he was killed or if his eyes were put out. No, he was killed, but eyes were put out. Whose eyes were put out? His. No, not his. I'm sorry. Yes, his. Yes, his. I'm sorry. Yes, his sons, his sons were killed and his eyes were put out. It was the last thing he saw was the death of his sons. Right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So that, what, what's the message of my madness here? All right. Here's one little connection that we can date. We can date this comment about false prophets to the time of Zedekiah, <clears throat> which is up to 586 B.C. Well, then when did he come to the throne? If his last year of reign was 586 B.C., when did he come to the throne? How did he come to the throne? Who did he replace? Not Josiah. Jehoiakim. Correct. And who did Jehoiakim replace? Jehoiakim. Remember last week we talked about the possibility that Jehoiakim may have had his body thrown out because he was assassinated. And why did Jehoiakim go out to Nebuchadnezzar? Remember, Jehoiakim goes out with his mother, the queen mother. Pardon? He's besieging the city. That's right. He's besieging the city, which may be one of the reasons Jehoiakim was assassinated. And he, that is Jehoiakim, goes out with the queen mother and the rest of his nobles and surrenders. Why did he do that, Terry? To really appease Nebuchadnezzar. Very good. Placate Nebuchadnezzar and possibly spare the city. He only reigned for three months, and he is succeeded by Zedekiah. And who puts Zedekiah on the throne? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar puts Zedekiah on the throne, and Nebuchadnezzar takes Zedekiah down off the throne. All right, so <clears throat> there's a suggestion by looking at chapter 27, particularly this language about the false prophets, this narrative about the false prophets is larger than just this incident in chapter 14, we might be able to date the events of chapter 14 to the time of Zedekiah. But that means somewhere between 597 and 586 B.C., because 597 is the second siege of Jerusalem when Jehoiakim uh, placates uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah is uh, crowned uh, by Nebuchadnezzar as the successor king.
All right. Now, this is somewhat speculative, but nonetheless, it at least gives us a ballpark for thinking about when this event occurred sometime after the death of Jehoiakim, the uh, surrender of Jehoiakim and the enthronement of Zedekiah potentially. Okay, sometime within the last 10 years of the existence of the nation of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, yes, Scott. That's very, the Bible I have says that Jehoiakim is another option textually. Jehoiakim. Uh, you're saying Zedekiah, though, is the best textual option. Uh, yes. Oh, I see that. Uh, no, I think it is, uh, I think it's Zedekiah, yeah. Um, well, one of the reasons for that is that in verse 3, you'll notice there's no ambiguity there at all. So it, it, it's possibly a textual elision which uh, has, uh, <coughs> has raised a question about the transmission of it. All right, now... Um, <clears throat> I suggested that going back now, going back to chapter 14 and reminding ourselves that we have these two stories. There's the story of this drought and the story of these false prophets who are actively prophesying falsehood. Okay, so this is a narrative drama, two sides, drought. That's definitely dramatic. And these false prophets who are prophesying falsely, not truly in the name of the Lord. So what's the interrelationship between the two of those stories? How do you see those two narratives interfacing? How do you see them interleaved? How do you see them interrelated or don't you? There's a two completely distinct and separate narrative stories. Yeah, that's what most of the liberal critics say. See, that's the reason they don't think the false prophets belong. They think somebody stuck it in here where it really should belong over with chapter 23, 24 to 27, where we have a whole gamut of stuff about the false prophets. So they think somebody stuck it out of place. Nope, didn't stick it out of place. Terry, go ahead. Well, I'll take a guess that uh, the false prophets were telling the people what they wanted to hear. And... The drought is certainly not giving them what they want to have. Exactly. So uh, it was kind of proving that what they were saying was not going to happen. Mm. You've got got to come a little further. Well, they were saying that it wasn't, they were going to live in peace and that, that they weren't going to be. Uh-huh. Uh, so what kind of promise is that? It's false promise. I mean, give me another word. It might have something to do with drought. You see what I'm trying to get you to think of? I'm trying to get you to think of something in terms of similarity between these two narrative dramas. Okay, you've got the false promise. All right, but that doesn't quite correspond with drought unless we get another word in here. Can anybody think about what the other word might be? M. Right. M. The false are preaching a barren word of God or a barren word from themselves. 
and the drought is causing barrenness in the land, isn't it? So we've got two narratives which are interfacing in terms of the emptiness of the prospect that is before the nation, whether it is the prospect of the natural calamity of empty barrels and empty cisterns, or whether it is the spiritual crisis of empty promises, empty predictions, and empty assurances. Okay? So we have this element of aridity. Arid, arid vocabulary, arid promises, arid hope, arid projections, as well as arid uh, flower bins and arid uh, grocery shelves, etc. All right. There is no rain in the drought, and there is no true word of God from these false prophets. There is the drought of rain and the drought of the truth. So that the rain is scarce, and from these false prophets, truth is scarce. What's portentous about both of them? What's ominous about both of them? Prospect of death. death is the prospect, the portent, the ominous feature of both. Obviously, drought is going to lead to death if it's not resolved by rain showers. And the false testimony of the prophets, of the false prophets, is also going to lead to death because it's going to create presumption. It's going to create a reliance on a falsehood. It's going to create a letting down of the defenses, so to speak. All right. Now, with respect to the reality, the reality at the opening of this chapter is the drought. They are really experiencing no rain, no moisture, and the failure of the land. Now that is mirrored in the false prophet narrative. What are the false prophets actually doing? By their false prophecy, Terry mentioned it a little bit ago. Terry, what did you say they were prophesying? What people people wanted to hear. Which was what? Which was there was going to be peace and they were. Very good. There's going to be peace. No. There's not. Peace. So the prophets are living in what? It's a good modern phrase when you won't face reality. You're living in denial. denial. So the false prophets are mirroring denial. Okay, the drought is uh, the real the, the, the reality of the prospect of not peace but death. But the false prophets are denying that. They are denying that there's going to be any death in the prospect of this, of this story. And so consequently, they are mirroring the drought by denying that there's any uh, long-standing circumstances to result from it. Now, we have to ask, where is the reverse mirror? Where is the reverse mirror in this account? In this narrative, where's the reverse mirror? Where's the reverse mirror with respect to the drought? 
Verse 8. All right, uh, the, rever- the, the mirror of denial is a reflection of the drought. All right, now, reverse the mirror. Reverse the denial. And what are you admitting? Verse 8. That you need what? Verse 8. Next line. Next line. What do you need? You need a savior. You need a savior. All right. Now, notice where this occurs. This occurs in verses seven to nine. Look at the top of your page here, the top of the island outline. This is the prophet speaking on behalf of the nation to God. He is actually uttering a what? You, O Lord, the hope of Israel, the Savior in time of distress. What is that? Intercession. Not quite. It's like he's at a Baptist camp meeting. (laughs) He's giving his what? He's giving his testimony. He's giving his confession. All right? So, actually, verses 7 to 9 are a confession of Jeremiah. They are parallel to verses 19 to 22. We have another confession of Jeremiah. The reverse mirror is a confession not of denial, hmm? not of denial, but a confession that we need a Savior. To break this drought, we need somebody to save us from the drought. Lord, thou art the Savior. All right, now what about the false prophets? Where's the reverse mirror there? It's the same. I'm sorry, it's the same, is it not? Do not annul your covenant, verse 21. In other words, remember your covenant, and the implication is once again, save us from the false presumption, the denial of the prophets who, who prophesy emptiness, barrenness, and vanity. It is very interesting to notice how the confessions of Jeremiah in this chapter are twofold. There are two sections of Jeremiah's confession. Verses 7 to 9, verses 19 to 22, and they correspond to the two narrative accounts, to the two narrative dramas in this chapter, the drought and the prophecy of the false prophets. Jeremiah, in those two sections of this chapter, is reversing the mirror on the narrative paradigm. It's as if... It's a downward spiral with the drought. And Jeremiah is reversing it with his confession in verses 7 to 9. It's a downward spiral with the false prophets and their activity. They're flourishing. They're flourishing. You know, they're making $500,000 a year with their big megachurches in Jerusalem. They're flourishing. 
But Jeremiah is going to reverse the picture. They are false prophets. They are empty bags of hot air. And God himself is going to have to remember his covenant faithfulness, not the unfaithfulness of these false prophets, not their deceit, not their deception, but the truth and the longstanding faithfulness of the covenant that God has made with his people. All right, it's very important then to realize this is a tightly knit chapter. You cannot pull this prophetic uh, section, this false prophet section, out of this without destroying the integrity, the balance, and the symmetry of this chapter. It is intentionally there in order to underscore the barrenness of the two narrative dramas, but then to display the graciousness of the reverse mirror with God as Savior in the face of the drought and God as covenant keeper in the face of the false testimony of those wretched prophets. Does that make sense to you? Do you see, do you see where we're going? So that this, this chapter holds together in terms of its symmetry and in terms of its balance of message, not barrenness, not emptiness, but the wonderful all-sufficiency and abundance of the saving goodness of God and of his covenant grace. Now, that's something that you can smile about. See? That, that, that will help you in the face of the drought. And it will definitely help you when you've got false prophets running around tickling your ears with every newscast that you turn on. Okay, excuse me for being a little too contemporary, but nonetheless, beware of what you hear. Okay. So the two stories here in the next part of the outline are drought, which is a present death threat, and underneath that, the preaching of the false prophets, which is a prospective death threat. The eschatological implication of the drought is death which is coming, and the eschatological implication of the preaching of the false prophets is a refusal to acknowledge that death is coming. In other words, the false prophets are proclaiming an anti-eschatology. An eschatology of ongoing perpetual peace and nothing bad will will happen to us. As bad as we can get, as bad as we are, nothing bad will happen to us because God won't punish us. God won't judge us. God will judge nations. Nations won't stand before the judgment seat of God when Jesus comes again in glory. England is not going to stand as a nation before the throne of God. Brazil is not going to stand as a nation before the throne of Almighty God. Nations don't stand before God's throne. Individuals do. So nations receive their judgment in this world, not in the world to come. God deals with nations in time and space, in our arena, because that's where the nations sin against him and make a stench in his nostrils. And that's the reason nations rise and fall. That's the reason earthly kingdoms come and go. That's the reason that those who are vested with the responsibility of leadership must indeed be men and women of integrity and justice. If they are not, 
God will deal with that nation. The testimony of history is absolutely consistent. As Milton says, you do not durst defy the omnipotent to arms. And that includes little tin horn imps as well. All right. Any questions about that? We've set the kind of paradigm for the fact that this chapter is a piece of whole cloth. It all hangs together in terms of twofold symmetry and parallelism. I trust you're persuaded. But if you're not, I'm going on anyway. All right, let's take a look at verse 1. Now, a little detailed thought about why drought was coming to Judah at this time in this era, whether it's just the time of Jeremiah in general or whether it's the time of Zedekiah somewhere between 597 and 586 B.C. Why drought against Judah? Okay, let's take a look at verse 22. Let's see if we can pick it up. Why drought at this time in the history of Judah? What's the key word in verse 22? Which really is an explanation of why God sends the drought. The idols. Now, Loretta? You've already got it. As you go up to the next level, A plus. What I particularly be in view with respect to drought. Okay. A plus. Give that girl a gold star. All right. Excellent. Why, Loretta? He was the god of the weather. Excellent. Yes. Baal is is uh, discovered even in a statue that the archaeologists have uncovered with a lightning bolt in his hand. He's the god of thunder. He's the god of lightning. He's the god of rainstorms. He's the god of the spring rain fertility. And, of course, he's worshipped in imitation of that through sacred prostitution. All right, so this is quite appropriate. God sends the drought because he's sending judgment against the worship of Baal. He's showing that Baal can't send you rain. Does that remind you of another contest with Baal? Yes? Right, and and what 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 was going on in the days of Elijah? Yes. A drought. There'll be no dew nor rain these years, except at my word, says Elijah. Okay, Ahab and Jezebel. All right. So, prophets of Baal, even in Elijah's day, are feeling the brunt of uh, the judgment of their powerless god. That is a god who cannot provide rain, even though he is worshipped as a rain god. That's what's going on here in Jeremiah's day, some two hundred plus years later. But uh, this is a this is an appropriate judgment against the cult of Baal, which reminds us of the gods of this age, the gods of the age of man, the gods other than the true God in any age of man. The gods of this age are barren. 
and arid. They are parched and impotent. Because the gods of this age bring death and terror, destruction and denial. How many gods of this age are actually the forebearers of death and corruption and sickness and savagery? And barbarity, how many of them do we know? Alcohol, drugs, pornographic sexuality. How many do we know? Bitter ethnic hatred, genocidal intent and design. How many gods of this age do we know? Political power, unbridled political power without restraint, illegally promoting its own agenda by thumbing its nose at the very laws of the land in which it lives because it believes it is some kind of privileged elite class that is not accountable to other rules, the rules that the serfs and the peons underneath them have to obey. The only rule that those serfs and peons have to obey is the rules that the leader makes them obey. Does it sound like 1984? Does it sound like George Orwell's Animal Farm? Does it sound like some of the predictive anti-utopian literature that some of us read when we were in high school? It certainly does. And if you pull down your copy of Brave New World or George Orwell's 1984, you'd actually believe that you're living through what they predicted. Because you are. We are. It's not a pretty picture. But this is the gods of this age. And in contrast to those gods, the reversal, the mirror reversal is instead of barrenness, fruitfulness, instead of arid land, fountains of living water, instead of parched souls, streams of the water of life, instead of impotent gods, potent, omnipotent God. That gives you not death but life, not terror but peace, not destruction but the upbuilding city whose maker is God, not Denial, but confession. Ah, you see, Jeremiah is the true prophet. He is not a proclaimer of denial. He is a confessor of the saving covenant grace of God. The idolatries of the 21st century are so insidious it's virtually impossible to persuade anyone that they're being charmed out of eternity. They're being charmed into hell. They're going to hell in a stretch limo because that's the good life. What kind of a culture do we live in 
when people can erupt in an explosion of rage and fury because somebody missed a touchdown call. Okay. Time for a break. We're down at the bottom of uh, page one. The outline with the little question mark besides distinction. And here I'm asking you to think about the distinction between drought and famine. Or do you think that they're the same? Drought and famine. Down at the bottom of page one, you see question mark beside distinction. And then drought and an arrow to famine. It, are drought and famine the same? What do you think, Cheryl? I don't think so. You don't think so? What's the difference? You're right. What's the difference? Well, I, I would think a drought could cause a famine. Very good. But not there. I mean, you know, you wouldn't. It wouldn't be the same thing. I don't. Not to me, it wouldn't. Okay. The drought. Lack of water. Okay. What's no food. Very good. Well, that's easy. The distinction <laughs> is that the drought is a lack of water, as she said, and the famine is a lack of food. So the one can lead to the other. Well, then, what comes out of the famine? Robert? Starvation. Starvation. That's the next thing on the outline. What comes out of starvation? Death. No. 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 Jeremiah 19.9. Pardon? Jeremiah 19.9. Let's turn to that verse. Jeremiah 19.9. Yes, cannibalism is the next step. Now, uh, the passages that are listed there are descriptions of cannibalism during what event? Maybe 87? Pardon? Yes. 586. Yes. 586 B.C. During the third siege of Jerusalem. If you turn back to 2 Kings 25, verse 3. Just hold your finger in, in uh, Jeremiah 14. Turn back to 2 Kings 25, verse 3. Whoever gets it first, just read it out. It's a short verse. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine, I mean, the famine was so severe in the city, God says in Jeremiah 19.9 that he's going to force them to eat their own flesh and the flesh of their children. Lamentations 2 and 4 indicate that the women, in fact, boiled their children and ate them. And Ezekiel 5.10 also describes that horrid event. 
So uh, this is not unknown, incidentally. There's another incident in 2 Kings 6, which happened uh, in the days of Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria and uh, Samaria, uh, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it is recorded in other annals in ancient world. Archaeological excavations have found evidence of this, where uh, there was nothing left to eat. And so uh, people would cannibalize one another even to the point of killing uh, others in order to eat them. All right, Uh, this is not a pleasant thought, but nonetheless it is part of the reality of the horror of starvation and what people are occasionally uh, driven to in the case of of suffering uh, hunger pangs and starvation. Famous Donner Party on the California Trail, I think it was 1843, 47, something like that. And that's still a fascinating uh, a piece of investigation that crashed years ago in the Andean Mountains, uh, the plane and uh, how those people survived uh, on the flesh of the dead who were there. Uh, so you face the issue of somebody were already dead and you were starving, okay, would you cannibalize that flesh? Uh, it's an interesting point, uh, but to kill somebody and eat them, that's a different matter. That's actually murder. So uh, uh, we're we're not uh, defending that at all, uh, but we're just observing that it does happen. All right. Any question about that? It has happened, and the Bible records the existence of it, and God even indicates he decrees the permission of it. All right, notice in verse 3, we have a bit of a litany. Uh, Down through verse 6, which is part of this opening section, of the first uh, drama, name of the drama of the drought. Notice the use of the negative particle in each of those four verses that are listed there. No blank, no blank, no blank, no. What's the the litany? No what? In verse 3, what do you have? No what? No what? Verse 4, what do you have? No rain. Verse 5, what do you have? No grass. No grass. Verse 6, what do you have? No vegetation. No vegetation. Good. All right. The progression is, uh, you know, somewhat repetitive. Water and rain are synonymous, and grass and vegetation are synonymous. Uh, So we we have this lack of water producing lack of any uh, green vegetation uh, in the land. And that's underscored in verse 3 by the fact that the cisterns are... Empty, and we're reminded of chapter 2, verse 13 of Jeremiah, where the cisterns are broken. They are leaky. It, it, could it be that they are empty because they're leaking? Uh, yes, but here probably they're empty because there is no water to fill them up. So both elements or both aspects are true. <clears throat> now, there's an interesting scene shift here uh, between verse 4 between verses 2 and 3 and verse 4. Let's see if you can spot it. Uh, What is the scene in verses 2 and 3? What's the location? It's on a farm. Not in verse 2 and 3. In verse 4, you're right. It is on a farm. So we, we obviously have a location there. But what is going on in verses 2 and 3? What's the location there? Judah. Uh, one step further. 
Because that would include the land of the farms, too. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, so the scene is what? A city. Okay, now in verse 4, the scene is what, Robert? Farm. Kind of uh, territory. It's what kind of what? Territory. What kind of what what kind of uh, area? It would be a, a yeah, rural area or uh, country. Okay, farm in the country, Jerusalem in the city. So the shift from the city to the countryside, <clears throat> but it's a comprehensive shift. The drought is going to touch the whole culture, city and the country. All right. Notice that the nobles are mentioned in verses uh, in verse three. And the farmers are mentioned in verse 4, the nobles, those who inhabit the city, and the farmers, those who inhabit the country and the fields. This drought is going to be universal. No place exempt. Not any part of the city and not any part of the country. Verse 6. This is a pathetic scene where we have wild donkeys panting for air, their eyes failing. Why are the donkeys panting for air? Dehydration. Dehydration. Part of of the lungs being dehydrated, part of what? Process. Mm, Yes. Part of what process? A person dying and listen to them panting for air. And what do we call those? The death throes. The death throes. T H R O E S. Yes, it's it's a it's a horrible thing to have to observe. There's nothing you can do to stop it except keep the mouth moist. Uh, They're at the point where they cannot even swallow. And consequently, only uh, the palliative measures of comfort uh, can be granted. You just have to wait it out. Now, my point here is it happens to animals as well. It's the same thing in the animal kingdom. So these donkeys are going through death throes. They're panting the air because there's nothing to eat. There's no water to drink. So they're gasping and dying in the process. Sometimes you'll hear the so-called death rattle. That is, you'll start to hear the lungs rattle in the process of the death throat. All right, so uh, this is a description of what's happening to the animal creation. Why do the eyes fail? They get to the point where they can go ahead, Ben. Probably for the same reason. Yes. They have no food. There's no vital force in in the metabolism. Nothing feeding the uh, livelihood of the eye. So they, they can't see clearly. The, the vision becomes blurred. Okay? It isn't that they become actually absolutely blind, but you see, they'll stagger. Particularly animals that are starting to die, they'll stagger. They'll bump into things. They don't see clearly. All right. The... The pathos here is to underscore the curse of this drought and how it is endemic to both city and country, to both man and beast. So what does Jeremiah do? 
He launches into his first confession, verses 7 to 9. And he uses vocabulary here, which is interesting. In that seventh verse, he uses two words for what we would call generically sin. First word is iniquities. The second word is sinned against. Now, the Hebrew here is also significant. These are two different words. There's a multiple vocabulary for sin in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word avon means to turn aside. So when he says our iniquities testify against us, that is what is testifying against us is the fact that we turned aside from the law of God. We turned aside from the holy will of the Lord. We turned our backs on it. God said, go this way. We turned aside. We went this way. We turned our backs on it. You see, it's a very vivid. Hebrew is a very vivid language. In fact, all Semitic languages are vivid. They create pictures for you. So here's a word for sin that you're turning aside. Well, you can see that, right? You see a picture of that. Hmm? Person turns aside from sobriety or drinking in moderation becomes a drunk. You can see it. You see him stagger. You see him vomit. Person goes on to drugs and, and stays away from treating his body like the temple of the Lord. And you see them losing their mind. You see them contracting all kinds of diseases. You see them going from one step drug to the next step drug. Oh, well, let's legalize marijuana. Do you know what happens to a pregnant mother when she takes marijuana? Do you know where the marijuana goes to the baby's brain? Do you know what it does to the baby's brain? It destroys part of the baby's brain. So that now the baby is handicapped from the time that it's born, even from the time that it's in utero. You want to legalize marijuana? What are you going to have down the road? You're going to have drug babies. That's what you're going to have. And some of the behavior you're seeing in children, some of the very rebellious and demonic behavior you're seeing in children is a result of drug use by their parents, drug use by their mothers, particularly when they're carrying them in the womb. <clears throat> so if you start with marijuana and you say, no, it, <clears throat> it doesn't go to the next level, how do you know it won't go to the next level? Are you willing to take that risk with a human life that they're not going to go on to cocaine? They're not going to go on to LSD. They're not going to go on to hard drugs after they start with marijuana. You're willing to vote that into legality? Oh, if we legalize it, then we can tax it and we'll get the money for the schools, right? Yeah, right, 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 right. As if that money never ends up in the hands of the teachers' unions. I better stop being on a stump again here. All right. The other word hata in Hebrew. Uh, who uh, uh, have you ever have you ever uh, taken an archery course or have you ever ever used an archery? Uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of an. An archery course where you go out and actually use, uh, shoot it, shoot it. <laughs> that, yeah, that's true too. But, but I think in a place where it's, it's you know closed in or whatever. Anyway, forget forget the word that I can't think. A range. There you go. All right, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, shooting range, archery range. Yeah. Have you ever been to an archery range? You ever have you ever used a bow and arrow? Yes. Yes. Okay, kind of fun, isn't it? But 
you know, they start you out with a little 25-pound or 15-pound bow, and, you know, they, they, they give you this kind of blunt arrow that doesn't have a point on it, and they, they put this, uh, this uh, <clears throat> a straw circle thing with a target, red target on it, and a couple circles with a, with a black one in the middle, and they say, hit that target, okay? So you, you, uh, you try to, to hit the mark with your arrow. So, sin is to miss the mark. Hata is the Hebrew word for missing the mark. God sets the mark with the standard of his righteousness. And you miss the mark when you're unrighteous. So once again, here's a visual Semitic word. You get a picture of what sin is. Sin is like you notching that arrow and shooting at the target and it goes way over there. You didn't even go near the target, which is what happened when I first did it as a Boy Scout years ago. (laughs) Okay, so these terms are giving you a visual picture of the character of sinful behavior. To turn aside from the truth of God and from his righteous law, to actually miss the mark, to miss hitting his righteousness with your own obedience. Now, there's something else in this seventh verse uh, that I want you to note. It's the phrase, for your name's sake, and I want you to notice that it appears once again, that phrase, in verse 21. So if you, if you look at verse 21 for a minute, you'll see that that phrase, for your name's sake, is duplicated. Now, what did I say this was? with respect to Jeremiah in verses 7 to 9. This is Jeremiah's confession. And what's going on in verses 19 to 22? Another confession. Interesting that the language, vocabulary matches up again. When we get down to that second section, we're also going to see these words, awon and hata, repeated. So the similarity is a similarity of vocabulary, which reinforces the case for the fact that we've got duplicate confessions of the prophet Jeremiah. All right, now in these uh, the three verses, 7, 8, and 9, we have a little patterned um, structure that I've outlined there. Uh, the pronoun, personal pronoun, us, plural personal pronoun, us, occurs in verse 7 at the beginning uh, of this confession, and it occurs in verse 9. In fact, it's the last word in verse 9. But notice what is, what's the tone in verse 7. The tone is negative. Our sins testify against us. The tone in verse 9 is positive. Do not forsake us. So we have a kind of antithetical parallelism with the use of that personal pronoun. Uh, The one is against us, and the other one is positively don't forsake us, don't leave us, be for us, don't forsake us. All right, now the similarities descend. You see the the act, O Lord, your name, in verse 7, and called, O Lord, your name, in verse 9. Then the word Savior, which we noted before in verse 8. And notice in verse 9, the negative, the antithesis of Savior. Not save. Man cannot save. And in between, two parallel questions. Two parallel interrogatives. 
Now, what's going on with these interrogatives? Notice that they are both bicolons. That is, they are both double lines. A stranger in the land like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night. A man dismayed, a mighty man who cannot save. Those are bicolons. That is, there are two lines in each of, each of those clauses. So what's going on with those two lines? Why are they doubled? And what do you remember about Hebrew symmetry? Poetic symmetry. Emphasis to what pattern, Ben? You're right. Emphasis. But what pattern? Through what poetic pattern? Because this is poetry, actually. The lines of the psalm. And we said when you see the lines of the psalm that look similar, we have a pattern of parallelism. Scott? That's what I was going to say. Hebrew parallelism. Yes. Actually, I like the word symmetry better because we outlined that in terms of what is what is A, what is more B. Good, Ben. Okay, so look at these lines. Let's take verse 8. Why art thou a stranger in the land? What is A? Why art thou a stranger? And what is more B, like a traveler who's pitched his tent for the land? For the night. Notice how you've expanded. There's uh, Ben's emphasis, uh, point of emphasis. You've expanded the image. A stranger in the land. That's someone who's a kind of an alien passing through. But there's the word traveler who has pitched his tent for the night. Notice we've expanded the imagery of this uh, of this uh, simile of this metaphor. Second part in uh, verse nine. Why art thou a man dismayed? What is A? Why art thou a man dismayed? And what is more B? Why art thou, I'm like a mighty man who cannot save. We've expanded and emphasized the uh, second line of the bicolon. So this what is A and what is more B pattern can even be used here with the prophets because Jeremiah is a poetic prophet. He writes most of his book in poetic style. All right, now put it together below those, uh, uh, those blank lines for 7 and 9D. Put it together in terms of a progression. The confession, which begins verse 7, is followed by a profession in verse 8. He is the hope of Israel. He is the Savior in time of distress. That's matched by another profession in verse 9, parts C and D. You are in our midst. We are called by your name. The questions in between in verse 8 and 9, which we took a look at, the stranger traveler question, the man mighty man question. And then the balance of the confession closes with a petition. Do not forsake us. Confession, profession, question, question, profession, petition. Balance, balance, balance. This is a well-constructed confessional prayer or confessional declaration that ends with an appeal, with a supplication, with a petition. Now, verse 10 is an underscoring or an emphasizing of the inevitability of God acting in judgment against the nation. There's a similar language in Hosea 8.13. I'm not going to take the time to look it up tonight, but you can check it out. 
this phrase, he has kept, he has not kept their feet in check. They have not kept their feet in check. They have not restrained their feet. From what? One wander. Another word? From idol worship. From idol worship, what else? What, what, what category have they not restrained their feet from? Sin. From sin. All right, so they have not held themselves in check. So why haven't they held themselves in check? Because they don't want to. Correct? They do not wish to be held in check or restrained or withheld from doing their own pleasure, doing their own sinful pleasure. They have a habit of sin. In the Latin, the word is habitus. They have a habit of sin. They have a disposition of sin. They have a nature of sin. They have an inclination to sin. They like to sin. Every day you look at your news, if you watch the mainstream media news, you look at your news and you see stories about people that like to sin. If you have the Internet, you've got all kinds of stories of Hollywood people that like to sin. They glamorize that stuff. Ugly stuff, wretched stuff, vicious stuff. And yet it gets approval. It gets endorsement. It's as if it's cool. Because it's habituated in them. They are habituated to it. And the only way they will be unhabituated is if they will be transformed and converted by the grace of God. So it's just a matter of a greater or lesser degree of habitual sin. But it is the habit that drives them. Just like the generation of Jeremiah's day, they refuse to keep themselves in check. Verse 11, for the third time, the other two passages are listed there. For the third time, Jeremiah is told not to pray for them. He enters into the mirror of God himself. Why don't you pray for them? Because I'm not going to spare them. So don't pray because it's not going to affect any change. If you have problems with this, then you're going to have problems with Jesus' statement, I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you have given me out of the world. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's not praying for everybody. So that great big statue of the universal Jesus in Sao Paulo, Brazil, is a fraud. Because he's not praying for everybody that comes through that harbor. Not really and not symbolically. Now, that doesn't mean that we know who to pray for and who not to pray for. We don't. We pray hoping for the conversion of all men and all women and all children. But we realize that God himself has not prayed for them. Oh, Dennison, that's hard stuff. Don't don't blame the messenger. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's God speaking there. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm only praying for those whom you've given me out of the world. Predestination and election is a reality of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the book. You can't get it out by saying, I don't want to believe it. It's okay if you don't want to believe it, but then don't say that it's not there. And don't try to make it not there by interpreting it some other way. It's there. 
God is absolutely just and sovereign. You have to come to grips with that. But understand that his sovereignty is exercised in accordance with the habitual nature of the sinner. You want your habit of sin? I will give you up. Romans 1. I give them up. I give them up. I give them up. You want your head? I'll give you your head. You want your iniquity? I'll give it to you. I'll take my hands off of you. I'll give you what you want. I won't restrain you. I won't hold you in check either. Because you don't want to be held in check. But if with all your heart you truly seek me, you shall surely find me. If you want a new heart, come to me and I will give you a new heart. He is gracious and patient and long How long suffering has he been? How long suffering does he continue to be with this generation? And we hold out that invitation to the grace of Christ in a new life, a changed life, changed habit, changed inclination, changed nature by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we measure our own life by that standard, do we not? It is the standard of heaven. It is the standard of the kingdom of God. It is the standard of glory. We want to live in such a way that we show that we have been released. We are unrestrained for godliness, holiness, and glory. And we want to reflect that in our life and testify to that to our world and to our neighbors and to our church we want that to be the testimony of our character our habitus that we have been changed by the Lord Jesus praise his name all right notice in that 10th verse that God says he will remember He will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. What does he say in chapter 31, verse 34? You don't need to turn to it. We don't have time. That's the chapter of the new covenant. And at the end of that declaration, where he begins in verse 31 of that chapter, I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with your fathers in the days of old, which covenant, which covenant, my covenant they broke. But I will make a new covenant with them, and I will remember their sins no more. Here in verse 10, he's talking about the eschatological judgment. In chapter 31, verse 34, he's talking about the eschatological new covenant of redemption. So there's going to be a reversal here. He's going to say there's coming a day when I will not remember your iniquities, because they will be laid to the account of my son, and my son will purge them away for you, and I will not remember them against you anymore. Uh, sword, famine, and pestilence uh, come from war. Uh, notice in that twelfth uh, verse, uh, <clears throat> the relationship between the eleventh and the twelfth verse. Uh, God says, "Do not pray uh, to Jeremiah," and God Himself in verse twelve says, "I am." not going to listen to their cry. That's a mirror relationship. Jeremiah's not is a mirror of God's not. All right, page three of your outline. Verse 13 is underscoring uh, something we've talked about already. The narrative interface, that is, the false prophet's 
are deluded in the face of the drought. Uh, this is a kind of preliminary discussion of false prophets. There's a very large discussion of the false prophets in Jeremiah 23, 27, 28, and 29. Jesus refers to false prophets in uh, the little apocalypse in uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. He talks about the false prophets coming in the last days. There have always been false prophets in the church, but as we approach the end of the age, they will intensify. Those false prophets are promoting a false peace. They are promoting a peace when there is no peace. They are promoting a peace because they control the narrative. They deny the fact that there is no peace, which is what Jeremiah is saying, because they believe that they are the scions of a superior culture. They deny that they they affirm that there is peace because they suppose that they are superior politically elites. They say that peace is going to be perpetual because they have superior social sensitivity, superior judicial activity, so that they can actually make peace in the legal arena just by their own rulings. They have a superior religious piety. Even if they have no religion at all, they still are superior in piety to you. And they have a superior recreational idolatry. We've talked about that already. The American lust for sport. Oh, if we had as many people who were eager to come and hear the word of God as sit in Safeco Field, we wouldn't be able to contain them. God's charge, verse 14, that the falsehood of the false prophets is the falsehood of false revelation. In fact, these false prophets are receiving no revelation. They're spouting the whimsies of their own mind. They're spouting the reconstructions of their own designs and hidden agendas. They are hot air. They are nothing but wind. They are preaching deception. They are blind leaders of the blind. And the Lex Talionis, verse 15 The lex talionis is a principle that the punishment fits the crime. These false prophets deny that the sword is going to come. The sword, when it comes, will not deny them. The punishment will fit the crime. You say there is going to come nothing but peace. You say there's no sword coming. The sword will come and it will give you no peace. That's the lex talionis. That's the law of eye for eye, blood for blood, tooth for tooth. Punishment for foolish indulgence. And God pours it out in verse 16 upon their own evil. And the consequence of their evil is visited upon them. And notice how inclusive it is in that 16th verse. Upon themselves, upon their wives, upon their sons, upon their daughters. No one in the family escapes. And so horrid will it be that they will not be buried. They will be left with the shame and indignity of the dishonor of exposure of their corpse to the elements and to the carrion eaters. Over and over again in history, it has happened time after time after time again. 
brutal murder, brutal death, brutal war, and the corpses piled to rot. Verse 17, Jeremiah breaks into his uh, response, which we've seen before. He weeps. And so we once again underscore the fact that this is the weeping prophet, and he will weep in a whole book, namely the book of Lamentations. Verse 18, they will go to a land not known. These false prophets will be exiled to Babylon. They will go off as priests and prophets of falsehood to a land of religious falsehood. The recurrent paradigm in verses in verse 18, notice the distinction between country and city, something we saw in verses 2 to 6. Verse 19, peace, but no peace, repeated from chapter 6, verse 14, and chapter 8, verse 11. They say there is peace, but there is none. They promise hope, change, and peace when we get terror, bloody chaos, and fearful despair. The three question marks in verse 19 are three interrogatives. You'll notice they're balanced by three question marks in verse 22. And in between that vocabulary that we noted in verse 7, the vocabulary of awon for turning aside and hata for missing the mark, which once again solidifies the symmetry and parallelism between those two confessional sections. The confession of Jeremiah in verses 7 to 9 and the confession of Jeremiah in verses 19 to 22. One final note in verse 22, the idols. The word here is vanities, the nothings. The no gods at all. They can't give rain because there's nothing to them. They are not God. Only the Lord, our God, can visit us with rain and showers. We hope in thee. Next to the last line of the chapter. We can go to no other, says Jeremiah. We hope in thee. We hope in Christ Jesus alone. To whom else can we go? He alone and only he is the only Savior. That is our only hope in life and in death. But there is also the hope of a city where there is no more drought, no more famine, No more starvation. No more death. Nor is there in that city any deceit or falsehood. No duplicity. No demagoguery. No denial. A city where they shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst any more. For they shall have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A city where God himself will be among them to wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no longer any death, nor crying, nor pain, anymore. That's the ultimate 
mirror reversal of Jeremiah 14. That's your hope. More glorious than Jeremiah ever imagined it. But Jesus and God the Father have revealed it to you in these last days. You hold on to that hope. That's the treasure of the God of grace and glory. Let's pray. Father, we are often discouraged, downcast by the circumstances of our own time and by the remembrance of the circumstances of Jeremiah's time. We realize that in many ways there are similarities. And we realize in many ways there are the same kinds of denial. We realize, O Lord, that we are driven to hope, no, not in a restored theocracy or city or land that will be revived. We we remember that we have no one else to go to save the Lord Jesus Christ and the land of heavenly promise and the city which is Jerusalem above. We lay our faith and hope before you, clutching the Lord Jesus to our breasts and holding fast with that vision of that eternal city which can never be destroyed, never be starved into conquest, never receive drought or barrenness or death, a city which is as alive as alive as you are, fountain of living waters that you are, wonderful Savior and sustainer that you are, Lord God, wonderful truth that you are. Feed us upon these riches. In Christ's name, amen. Chapter 15 next week. And we'll be thinking about the career of King Manasseh. If you want to go back and read the story of Manasseh, it would be a good idea if you have time to do that, both in the book of Kings and in the book of Chronicles. And if you do that, be prepared to tell me what's the difference between Manasseh and King and Manasseh and Chronicles. Interesting.